All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special Questlove Supreme. Uh, your host, Questlove, here with Sugar Steve. I'll say that our guests today are the founding trailblazers and New York legends, along with drummer uh, Clint Burke, bassist Lee Fox, guitarist Tommy Kessler, and keyboardist Matt uh, Katz-Bohan. They ushered in the very influential punk slash new wave movement. I know musicians hate when things get a title. I often cringe when I hear the Neo Soul title. But, you know, this is too legendary to, to just casually not spot, spot on describe what they represent in the world of, of music. They, to me, are the epitome of cool and the epitome of, of, of style and practically dipping their toe into every genre of music that defined a movement and a city pop, rock, punk, disco, reggae, and they're especially noted for being one of the early, 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 early co-signers of the burgeoning hip-hop movement. You know, there was, there was a period where the first five, to, depending on who you ask and how conservative they are, 10, maybe 20 years, in which hip-hop was hopefully going to be like a, a, a fad that went away, like a flu, that influenza that goes away eventually. But uh, they were one of the very first to co-sign the movement and really brought it to uh, a wider audience, going as far as to use the cachet to bring to light projects like the uh, the iconic score to Charlie Ahern's hip-hop classic Wild Style, um, and also being one of the first people to introduce hip-hop to a worldwide audience. Of course, the legendary Saturday Night Live episode with the Funky 4 Plus 1 that they literally just put their money where their mouth is. And, you know, it's one thing to just say you're down with a movement, but to really use your your power, you know, to do so is another. Uh, they're currently celebrating the release of their Mammoth Against the Odds box set, which basically celebrates the hits, the demos, and the remixes of their illustrious career. Over 124 songs in all. This is an honor to say... Please welcome to Questlove Supreme, Chris Stein 
and Debbie Harry of Blondie. Thank you. I'm I'm the only one clapping today, so just pretend <laughs> it's like 52 billion people. That was very, very generous. Thank you. No, you know it's it's I've 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 been a massive fan of you guys, you know, and so well likewise. And I I have to say, Debbie, thank you very much for my note. You you <laughs> happen to you happen to come on the show. Um, I'm talking about the Tonight Show, in which I was hoping to holler at you for a second before I went on stage, but I had to do something, and then by the time I got off stage, you'd already left because it's like a very long. Uh, show that we shot that day, but I saw the beautiful note that you left uh, in my dressing room, and I really appreciate that. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you very much. I meant every word of it, even though there were some uh, misspellings and scribbles. Uh, no, yeah. I, I yeah. appreciate <laughs> I, I appreciate that acknowledgement. I want to thank Chris for your nice note that you left me on my recording console. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, Steve. You know, I, I personally, I want to know uh, first of all, I I really do love the box set, and as a person that's just starting to think about looking under the hood of my own career, in terms of you know looking at artifacts and going through storage units and all those things, you know, all, oftentimes you're so present in the moment you don't realize that the most minuscule thing you have is going to wind up being history ten years later, you know. Um, so in terms of just getting, uh, all these artifacts together and keeping those demos and keeping those tapes and all that stuff, how, what was the, the, the process like? How painstaking was the process in putting this all together? Well, it went on over a pretty long period. I just had all this stuff, you know, like when we first started making money, you know, the, I always say the model for the rock star was different back then, or at least for me. Right. And Debbie, it was, we didn't think about buying Rolexes and Bentleys and shit. We wanted to, we just, I bought recording equipment. Mm -hmm. So I bought, uh, and guitars. So I bought, I had my own old uh, MCI setup, you know, the automation, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I dragged that around to a bunch of different apartments. We lived in different spaces and tapes accumulated along with that. And eventually that stuff all died and I gave it all away and stuff. And I wound up with a garage full of tapes upstate New York, which was where we did the assault on the tapes. Okay. So like, uh, what kind of tape, like two inch tapes or everything, like multi everything, everything. No, no, I don't know. No one, uh, had a lot of half inch, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of two inch. Yeah. A lot of two inch. I mean, I had, I wound up with a complete copy of the cuckoo record that we did with Niall and Bernard and Niall got the whole thing on like, just like two or three tapes because he was running at seven and a half, you know? Oh, really? It was, yeah. yeah <laughs> he was, he was economical. I was going to say that at the time, like when did you realize, I mean, most artists I know are not sentimental at all. There's a story. Well, I mean, he's not a musician, but, you know, I consider him a historian. Don Cornelius, in order to save maybe hundreds, hundreds of dollars, would, I mean, you know, when it came time to look through the Soul Train archives, you know, the staff there was sad to announce to me that, you know, Don wasn't too sentimental. So 
you know, this the stage and the lights and the um all the designs of of the shows of the Soul Train show within, you know, the 40-year history of it. He just had it all destroyed and crushed crushed and thrown away. And I was like none of you at all were like, yo, this will be historical one day, like we should save this stuff and you know, at the time Don was just thinking like uh-uh, storage storage space is too expensive and I can't afford it. So, I mean, oftentimes, you know, I'll tell new artists now, like, don't throw away that concert poster. Don't throw away your itinerary. Don't throw away, I mean, even Prince, like when Prince passed away, like literally anything he wrote on is almost damn near like five figure worthy in auctions now, like even directions to the house <laughs> or, or, you know, <laughs> Prince was world famous for writing uh whoever the lady of the moment was like poetry and stuff like you know <laughs> thing yeah. revealing too much but what i'm basically saying is did you guys realize in the beginning like i should save everything like even with besides the music like are you saving the outfits and the wardrobes and old posters or ticket stubs or itineraries i got a lot of junk left still but i know i mean it was so are you like, a hoarder no i'm totally my wife is like i can't go in there because it's like freaks me out it's so hoarded out the room in the you know in the basement where we are uh but uh you know there's so much stuff fell by the wayside i sold so many damn guitars that i i could retire now on what those things are worth in today's market you know it's just really yeah it's just crazy I I would like to know. Well, I'll ask the both of you. I'll start with Deborah. What was your first musical memory? Oh, wow! I know. Shocker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's that really goes back, doesn't it? I had, um, you know, children's records back back then. I I had a Victrola. At least my, that's uh -huh. what my dad called a Victrola, and it mm -hmm. was um, a, in a box, you know, a little suitcase. And it had uh, a speaker that was attached to the arm where the, you know, where the needle was and you would just yeah. drop it down onto the record. And um, so that those were my uh, earliest uh, things. And I, I think one of my, <clears throat> one of my favorites was a thing, <laughs> oddly enough, called Little Toot. <laughs> Little, Little Toot. Toot. Yeah. <laughs> was that a Disney record or? I don't know if it was a Disney record. Um, it okay. might have been, might have been, um, and but it was a really uh, great uh, little song that went through a lot of different emotional interpretations as it told the story of this little tugboat and, you know, the worthlessness of this little, little tugboat and how the big tugboats always, you know, pushed it around. But then little, fun of it. Yeah, yeah. little toot became like the, the hero of the day. The yeah. And uh, so basically Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And, in tugboats. In <laughs> tugboat talk. Yeah. Where, where were you born? I was born in, actually in Miami, but I grew up in uh, Hawthorne, New Jersey, which is just outside of Patterson, New Jersey. But um, my parents and well, my grandparents lived in Patterson. Okay. Uh, Chris, what was your first musical memory? Well, I, I don't I don't really remember locking on to any little kid music. I My first affinity for music started when I was like, I guess, you know, around 10 or 11 with movie scores, which was 
and man, some of those novelty songs, you know, like the the Chipmunks and Purple People Eater and stuff. But uh, I, you know, I don't know how much that moved me that stuff. But then I started, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia, what's the West Side Story? I mean, I, I, it's very hard for me to explain to younger people what a huge cultural touchstone West Side Story was. West Side Story was as big as the damn Beatles. There's no question about it. Yeah. I don't think people, people don't get that nowadays. My, oh, God, my mother got so mad at me because I took my sister, who is seven years younger than me, to see West Side Story, and, and she almost had a heart attack. Oh, no, you took, her, you took her to see that. Oh, no, how could you? But it was fabulous. It was so wonderful. And, you know, Leonard Bernstein was never better, really. I was going to say that um, I'm currently reading uh, Little Stephen, uh, Stephen Van Zandt's um, autobiography. And he, too, mm-hmm. has uh, an immense obsession with West Side Story and pretty much described it as the way that you guys did. Like, when it came out, it was mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, was, well, it was just such a huge deal. I don't know. I mean, there were probably other soundtracks. that I was probably more obsessed with Lawrence Arabia soundtrack, Maurice Jarre, you know, which yeah. is just great stuff. Well, the other but, thing that I listened to a lot was, like, the – the cowboy singers, which is, you know, Western, not mm-hmm. even country Western. It was really Western music. And uh, those were those were great, you know, great songs and people like Burl Ives and stuff. Burl Ives, yeah. Burl yeah. Ives. Nobody knows who he is now. Okay, so now that you, you know, declared your love for Lawrence of Arabia, I got to <laughs> ask you. No, 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 this is important because the, the very first – Okay, so I, I grew up in the household with uh, an older sibling who, you know, because of my sister's, um, because of her school situation, you know, she was fitting in with her girlfriends, what they were listening to at the time. So, you know, she was bringing in a lot of, you know, the classic new wave and punk stuff or whatever. But the the one album that I remember, even though she had like, you know, each of the beat and all that stuff, like. I remember the day that she brought Auto American. Okay, 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 okay. So there, on the orchestral session, there was a ba- one of the bass players played on the Lawrence of Arabia soundtrack. Right. And okay. I, that so that that was that it. Just, <laughs> I was going to ask: Is your obsession because you know the way that you opened up Auto American with uh, the Europa score? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know that by then I was into Nino Rota very deep and all this other stuff, you know. Um, uh, I, I always had a thing for soundtracks. I think soundtracks nowadays, that's a whole other topic, are, are way overused. Uh, they're becoming like laugh tracks, you know, where they steer your emotions in the direction right. of where yeah. whoever, whoever, the committee that wrote the thing they think you should be feeling, you know. And then, you know, gradually I, I started assimilating the pop music that was around me, like the locomotion. Everybody loved the locomotion, no matter <laughs> what, you know. And this, you know, this stuff um, like the Shangri-Las, I didn't really appreciate till a little later when we were doing the band. I, I was kind of like commercial to me at the time, mm. you know. Well, I'm and, older than Chris, and I remember yeah. this uh, thing. I used to listen to radio a lot. I had a little radio, and I my I always had my ear right next to the speaker. Mm-hmm. The speaker was only you know about this big, and uh, <laughs> they had a, a radio thing called the Hit Parade. Yeah. And all those like uh, crooners and, you know, 
yeah, band, yeah, yeah. band singers and stuff like that. It was a lot of that. It was kind of okay. great. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's even before. Yeah. And then I was, and then I went into folk music, of course, you know, because I was 15 and 65. And uh, by that time, I'd been playing, I'd been playing guitar for since I was 12. And folk music was it. And I remember learning how to play House of the Rising Sun was such a big deal to me, you know. So, can you describe to me what the New York nightclub scene was in terms of like the pre? punk the pre-new wave movement like if it's 74 if it's 73 or 74 mm. you know how where are you playing or like where are you hanging out at least well we met debbie was doing a show in a bar so i don't even i didn't, didn't go out to many clubs before i was in the band situation i mean max's was kind of the first thing i was going to regularly mostly um, it was bars you know people just setting up uh, on the floor in bars and stuff. Um, and then a the little bit later on, they became officially became clubs. But initially, they were bars. Okay. I mean, the stuff that we were involved with was like Mercer Arts Center came out of the art scene. I mean, Max's was an art bar. You know, all those, all those guys all those people went on to be famous and the art world had tabs at Max's, you know, the post Warhol movement or, or Andy, you know, he was always in the middle of everything. Okay. Uh, all for us anyway, for, for, you know, he was just there. He was a staple. I wanted to know, well, they mentioned Max's Kansas city and it's hard not to think of the velvet underground. Did you guys see the, the velvet underground play live there? At I, all? I opened up for the velvet when I was 17. Yeah. What was that like? It was amazing, and it was a pivotal moment in my musical life. <laughs> and it was they were playing in a place uptown called the Gymnasium, which was a Andy had connections to the um, like these Polish hall people, you know, who were in these old world halls. And this place was was the Gymnasium, and also did shows. This was 1967. I, me and my friends all knew who the Velvets were at that point. And I had a really close friend, who a guy I grew up with, I've known for 50 years, who was working for Andy at the time. His name is Joey Freeman. He's my, still my buddy. Uh, and he showed up at my house in Brooklyn one afternoon. And he said, listen, the opening band for the Velvets didn't show up. Do you guys want to do it? So we took our guitars on the subway. And we went uptown. It was like up in the west side somewhere, seventies or so, sixties or seventies. And the Velvets let us use their amps. And Maureen mm -hmm. Tucker let us put her bass drum upright, you know, because she only played it like like a timpani, right. you know, on its side. Right. You know? right. And uh, they were nice, and we played our blues rock set. You know, I, I don't remember. I only remember we did. You can't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> but I don't remember much to the other stuff, you know, like Route 66, that kind of junk we were doing. And we were really daunted because this place was big and echoey and there was like, not, there weren't too many people there, but then the Velvets came on and they took advantage of the echo. And that was also a life lesson for me because, you know, the place you're playing in becomes a part of your sound system. You know, people don't get that, you know, unless you're doing mm -hmm. this all the time. And, and they were awesome and filled the room and, Andy was there. We never saw him. And somebody came over and said, Oh, Andy thinks you're great. That was terrific. And that was, that was the event, but it was a really wonderful thing. I saw them uh, at uh, this place called the balloon farm. Balloon farm, Yeah. Yeah. On uh, St. Mark's place. 
and Andy was doing the lights and uh, Nico was with them that night and it, it was beautiful. It was just, I mean, beautiful visually and in sound wise and everything about it was beautiful. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Like, I know that you were in separate bands or could you tell us how the band came to be? as far as, you know, uh, the official start of Blondie? Well, the, the scene was very incestuous, and we all had mutual friends, though the two of us had never met. We think we we both were at Woodstock, but uh, we didn't meet there. Debbie right. had a job working for the first head shop in New York, which was called The Head Shop, which was on East 9th Street. And I remember going in there the day the before shop? it opened. Yeah, it's called the head shop. What is a head shop? What oh is a head God. shop? <laughs> they sell yeah bongs and posters and and uh, rolling papers and weed supply, you know. But it was <laughs> it was where you been? And yo, I, yo, dog. I'm I'm sorry. I'm the forty year old virgin. <laughs> and you know, it was it was a little more clandestine, and it wasn't like 
it was kind of understated that it was all based on weed consumption. I I never knew that it was called a head shop. Head shop, yeah, sure, head shop. Well, so because the, where weed, where I grew up, it was always the you know you always uh, at the mom and pop record store. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would assume that the guy also sold weed because you know the, just the smell of the record store mixed with you know Lysol and incense, like to try to. Well, the head, ah, head shops wouldn't okay. head shops wouldn't back then in the '60s wouldn't sell weed because they, they would they were too big a target. You know, they would just sell the the stuff. Of course, from I got it. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I was it. I was in the head shop the day before it opened, talking to a girl, and okay. for all I know. We, that was us, and we talked to each other. But three years later, four years later, I guess that was like 69 or 60 or 70 or something like that. Um, then, you know, everybody knew each other, and I had friends, and one of my friends, you know, it's, it's a very long story. But a mutual friend said, I heard about this band playing called the Stilettos, Girl Singers, go see them, and that was Debbie and two other girls. So that was it. Did that band have any any kind of startup or su- success, Debbie? You and the other two girls? Well, yeah. I mean, we had a small amount of notoriety, I suppose, and and, and interest. I don't think there was any uh, real reality as far as you know a professional career or you know recording or anything like that. Everything we did was. You did know. some stuff with the dolls. We did stuff with the dolls. Remember later on? Yeah. You guys, yeah. you guys sang back up in a couple of doll shows and stuff. Yeah. Oh, right. I, was that eighty two? Yeah, maybe or an up. I think there's a picture else. of us at eighty two. Yeah. Eighty two was I, another club that uh, that existed sort of in a mm, even darker way than uh, Max's or CBGB's. It was a an old uh, transvestite club from mm. the nineteen forties. Yeah, it was very gangster. Yeah. It was it was uh number eighty two is East Third Street, I guess, or something like that. Was, yeah. Something like yeah. a second first street, all the way east. And it was in a basement. It was that was a great scene. A lot of bands played there. Bowie went there, all the stuff went on there. Yeah. There's not a lot of info on it. Okay. So um one of my favorite kind of underground New York labels was private stock. Oh and, no! <laughs> <laughs> well, no, a lot of legendary records were in there, and if yeah. especially for hip hoppers, there's like <laughs> incredible breakbeats on there. But um, I, I gotta know, like, how did what was it like dealing with uh, Larry uh, Utel? Uh, well, Larry, Larry had come out of like the Brill Building scene. He had been he had been a part of Bell Records with with I think Seymour and Marty yeah, Seymour Stein. Yeah. 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 They were all like partners at one point, and then they split, went their different ways. Marty, mm-hmm. Marty Thau, you know, managed the Dolls all through their early heyday and the first records and all that stuff before before McLaren picked up on them. And uh, Larry was, you know, it was kind of a vanity project for him. I mean, I think his daughter Jody, who was like the press person, had a better idea what was going on in the reality of the street music, you know, that was coming out of the streets. Larry was like, you know, Larry, would, you know, the guy with the open shirt and the big gold chain around his neck. And well, he nice did stuff, what he, he liked. He was friends with, um, the girls don't cry. You know, that, that one. Oh, uh, Frankie Valley. 
Valley and the Teenage Right, yeah, Pranky yeah. Valley was on the label, right? When it oh, was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was their big act. And Peter Lemangelo, man. Peter Lemangelo. You know what Peter Lemangelo was? Peter Lemangelo was like this M-O-R, M-O-R singer. But the girls liked him because he was like sexy, mm-hmm. you know, thing. That helps. And then they, yeah, and then they had, <laughs> Being and then, sexy they had uh, then they had Fifth of Beethoven also on the label, which was. Yeah, yeah, Walter, Walter, uh, Walter, Walter, yeah, now, now Samantha Sings. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was an odd place to be for us. Yeah. It was very odd. And uh, we tried. <laughs> you know, we, we live in a time now which, you know, literally you can create a fully produced and realized album on your laptop. Um, right, right. But what what is the process of getting a demo? Like, okay, you're going to start a band. Now, I mean, at any point, are you guys like, hey, we're just hanging around doing the scene or are you guys like actively like we were trying to get a record deal yeah i mean that was the goal was to get the music out everybody knew i mean we all grew up with records and records being very important to us so Mm -hmm. that was of course a goal but in new york so there was i don't know a hundred bands instead of a hundred thousand bands the way it is now you know so that made that made a big difference. I always wanted to know this, um, and I know it's a Captain obvious question, but what was what was the actual reason why you guys settled on the name Blondie? We had been trying to uh, pick out a name, and uh, I mean, you know, you search for a name, and and we called ourselves Angel and the Snake for a, a few months, <laughs> and. Um, that that was sort of, uh, you know, it it wasn't really. It would have been a good name for nowadays, but uh, at that for point, a, for a metal band, yeah, maybe you know. <laughs> yeah. But right. well, we wanted to be a metal band, but I don't know if we even had that much of a. No. I don't know what we what we wanted to be anything. Well, I was but, working well, in a, as a beautician. I was working in New Jersey as a beautician. And, you know, during a slow hours, um, you know, we would do each other's hair. And so one day they did me and I was, you know, had blonde hair and uh, walking to Chris's house, you know, I was getting, you know, some street noise. Hey, Blondie, hey, Blondie. And I, I just said, oh, OK, well, that'll work. And that was that. Oh, OK. Yeah. I, I always thought it was a Blondie Dagwood reference. Well, but- it became that. Yeah, yeah we, we we were aware of that, and yeah. you know, and those guys never bothered us for all all the time. They never, there was never any. Y'all look tough as shit, yo. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there was never any complaints about us commandeering the name or anything from the comic people. Oh, you, you know? mean that? I thought yeah. you meant just. I thought you meant just in New York. My no, everybody bothered. You, but... Forget about that shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we got we got bothered a lot in New York. To be fair, I did say. To the guys, you know, when when we started getting, you know, official attention that um, they should all bleach their hair, you know, and be like wrestlers, you know, and the guys really? should all have blonde hair. And we'd all have blonde hair. But uh, no, nobody wanted to do it. Just while we're on the name uh, Blondie. So by now, of course, we all know your name is Deb- Debbie Harry, but people must have been calling you personally Blondie 
uh, this whole time. Is that disturbing bother you, or is that something that you just gotten used to, or do you say, "Hey, my name's Debbie"? You know, what do you? The band is Blondie. Well, I, I think there was that you know kind of the de- definition thing for a while. I didn't mind especially being called Blondie because I had the blonde hair, and you know, basically, you know, um, I, I guess little boys get called that too. You know, hey, Blondie. But usually, you know, little girls with my coloring, you know, are, are, are called Blondie very often. So uh, oh, it didn't okay. really bother me. It did bother me, you know, that we had to sort of identify ourselves constantly. But I, I think that, you know, you know I, I guess it's something that you, you know, you learn, right? You learn that you have to identify yourself. Well, as I said at the top of the show, people will often lump you guys in. Uh, with the punk movement or the new wave movement, you know, it's kind of like I I didn't necessarily think that you were either because for me, at least with the first the first three records, like from the self titled record to Parallel Lines, you know, there's there's a heavy sort of post I I guess you could say wall of sound feel in there, like in terms mm-hmm. of like a very updated uh like an updated kind of Specterish thing going on. Mm-hmm. So for you, was it always an eye rolling thing? If you know critics that obviously weren't on the scene that were like hanging around to see, like, was it weird to get typecast to be part of a movement that really? I, I don't know. I think between you guys and the police, like, even though you're you're lumped in with this move movement, you guys really weren't that level of punk to me like you guys were more of a stylish at least my my how it how it looked to me when i was like nine or ten well, years I, old i but. think i think the, i think the punk form is much more defined nowadays and you know in 2020 onward you know you got all these bands you know surfport and amel and the sniffers and right. all these guys are very defined in their punkness you know um back i mean when you think about you know us and television and talking heads and patty it was very diverse that kind of sound and, and it wasn't so i mean the ramones were very much in their own groove with the thing but they mm-hmm. were they were specifically them you know yeah i mean there was uh, rockabilly there you know was the sort of art rock you know blues it was all a punk scene and it incorporated a lot of different styles of music, which, uh, you know, we were actually experimenting with, you know, and trying to pull mm-hmm. in, you know, references that, you know, sort of befitted um, uh, a girl singer and, you know, a rock band and and with, you know, attitude, you know. I think for me, uh, I wanted to be a punk. I felt like I had enough attitude, but... Well, um, the punk... The punk. <laughs> definition was very much like a lifestyle thing the way the way a hippie was you know yeah. it was uh, you know it was like stylistic and uh, about do it yourself very much about do it yourself yeah. too and you know and, and then there was uh there was a backlash against all the real heavy mor stuff that w- was happening in the mid 70s then that was you know above ground you know whatever you know the eagles and linda ronstead and stuff was pretty right you know, sedate for us, you know. At that time, socially, who were your peers of that movement? Like, were you friendly with 
the Ramones or the New York Dolls. Yeah, Ramones. Or... We, were, we were very close to yeah, Ramones and the Dolls. There was kind of there were kind of two camps at CVs of the art rock people and the pop rock people. And we mm-hmm. were kind of in the pop rock side, you know, and it was a band called the Miami's. It was a band called the Fast. Um, you know, people. Richard that, Hell. Richard, Richard Hell. Richard, yeah. Johnny. And Johnny. Heart, Heartbreakers were a great band. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, all that stuff, you know. I believe that my band was the third, the second or the third to last act uh, to play at CBGB's. <laughs> I gotta know. Was that nice. bathroom always filthy? <laughs> the bathroom, the bathroom used to be upstairs, and the stage used to be on the on the left, facing facing the stage. And then it moved right. to the to the right, and the bathroom moved downstairs and got even worse. It wasn't. It was probably a little less gross when it was upstairs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I see. Any any f- fond memories there? I hate I hate being that person that's like. Like salivating over like again these folklore stories of clubs of your and you guys are just like eh, whatever we showed up and we played but you know at any point during that period did you know that this was like the the, the zeitgeist of of the scene or again was it just a hey it's Thursday night yeah. we're playing yeah no we were pretty much in the moment you know and uh, what I always I also say is everybody every single person I knew would say this is new york is so horrible i just gotta get out of here i can't stand it anymore but nobody left and there's this great lou reed monologue where he talks about how awful it is in new york for him but how much more uncomfortable he is everywhere else so that that was that pretty much but yeah i mean lots of crazy shit went down at cbs all the time Maxis too it was you know Well, it went through stages, you know, stages of development, because it wasn't like a a full on, you know, big club scene from the start. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a biker bar with, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, Bowery guys, you know, um, Alkies and stuff that hung out at this bar. And then uh, for some reason, Hilly, you know, started having music and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I have suspicions about, you know, there used to be a club, a club restaurant on uh, 9th Street, right off of um, 6th Avenue between 5th and 6th, and it was mm-hmm. called Hilly's. I, I somehow think that Hilly was involved with that. And no, he that, ran a couple of bars. Yeah, yeah, I think he had one that was like downstairs from Trudy Heller's too, at one point. Oh, really? Also. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He had a couple of bars around town. Yeah. And he had he was a singer also. He had a he had a country single on the jukebox in CBGBs <laughs> that I don't really hear people talking about too much. I don't remember what the heck it was, but it was yeah. there. New York is great for clubs, you know. I mean, it's, it's always been that way. It's great. How often is the rotation? I know that for me, in Philadelphia, there's really only, at least for the roots, like maybe if you're lucky, there's like six clubs to play. Yeah. Because we also had like you know, five or six major colleges there. So, you know, where you play at University of Penn, play at Temple, play, you know, you would just go to where the colleges were. But um, as far as rotation is concerned. Well, there, there, was a, there was a thing where if you played at Max's, you shouldn't play at CB's the next weekend. You had to like wait a week. But there were other little bars. There was like Broadway Charlie's. 
at a place right. called the Mushroom and that Monty Python bar and all, all these little things. Mothers, mothers, mothers was on Tony yeah. right across from Chelsea. Um, there was a, and my father's place was up in what Long Island City. That you know, stuff would come and go. I would assume that you know by the time, at least by the time you guys get to Chrysalis, that you know you're not you're no longer a like a local rock band and you're also doing national and yeah going out of state and whatnot so yeah yeah all that stuff went on but it's still the, the you know the other thing people may not get nowadays is what a goddamn wild west show the music industry was the touring touring in those days it was now it's so slick you know you got live nation all this stuff you know boom you go there i was going <laughs> to say yeah man was there such thing as a rider? Like, okay, okay. Because I ask each act to do this for me because I, I truly want to know, you know, and the thing you mentioned it at the top about the Rolexes and all that stuff. Yes, I'm in the, I'm in the hip hop generation, especially the first generation of like post-hype William videos where around 94, I would say that, yes, like even coming into the game, like we came into the game with two tour buses and a really good rider and Musilix and like, you know, like, where, where's my where's the uh you know the where's the manicurist at like that sort of yeah. shit yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. we did a fucking we were in a fucking we did a tour of australia oh, and we were in, we were in like a school bus man that was God. it like a like let a me know double, old school with like that was filled with dust you know and we had we and we had like a an america when we went on the tour with iggy and bowie we were in an rv which was like really crappy and falling apart. I remember too. We, so all that kind of stuff was was yeah. All right, so let's skip skip the parallel lines. Can you walk me through the process? Like, okay, so the idea of like tour buses and good hotel lodging. Like, at what at what point does that even happen, or is that something that was just invented in the nineties? Like, yeah, comfort? I'm gonna I'm gonna go with nineties. Damn. <laughs> because yeah, we had some man, it was you know, there was a lot of we briefly We we live for these nerd stories, so don't don't think you're like sparing us by like uh you don't want to hear about the time when Bowie store <laughs> stole our lunch meat or something. We never know? had we never flew private. There was just no such thing. But okay. like, briefly, I remember there was like ten minutes with when we were with Chef Gordon, there was like in Europe we had a little four seater jet for okay. a couple of publicity dates but that was like you know two flights or something like that we went on the concord we were on the we were on the fucking concord a bunch of times that okay. was that was nice yeah i was gonna say shep shep is one of my uh, closest friends and um what time does he enter managing the band i think the, the late 70s early 80s yeah 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 so he was there for parallel lines no no no, no that was that was each of the beat okay um it was towards no. the very end yeah oh, okay yeah. well auto american yeah. i know he was there auto for that american and the hunter which was you know the least, yeah. least yeah. successful yeah the auto american uh platinum plaque is uh hanging up above the guest bedroom so nice you guys teddy pendergrass and luther vandross yeah, records yeah. Are, <laughs> oh i like that are above uh yeah, I are like above that. uh when I stay at his house in, in his guest room. So with with parallel lines at least, which you know, many consider that to be like your 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 super breakthrough with it. Um, can you talk about 
the the making of of Heart of Glass, aka Once I Had a Love, and bringing that forth. Well, it was the it was all about the getting the Roland rhythm machine hooked up with this the Roland whatever the hell I can't remember. I should know this off my head, but I don't. Was there MIDI back in the day? No, it was it was all uh, voltage PC, yeah, voltage control. You know. Okay. So it was pre MIDI, and that was such a huge deal. That's where the whole the whole song was built up on the synth being hooked to the rhythm machine, and mm-hmm. everything was built around that. You know, we had the we had the chords and stuff and the structure, somewhat. You know, very time we, consuming. Very time consuming. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, going in with Chapman was great. I mean, Chapman was a master, and he was at the peak of his game. And we were also at the peak of analog too. It was the high right. point of fucking analog. You know, <laughs> he had he had the one. The digital reverb, I guess it's, I don't know, Eventide or whatever the heck that was, it is. Mm-hmm. He, he had that one unit, but everything else was just like that. And I'm, I'm glad we got to be there at that moment, too. But Chapman was great. He was like going in with George Martin for us. It was like a whole, you know, he was like the, the extra member of the band. It was just, it was fantastic. And we all, you know, he beat the heck out of us, but it was great. <laughs> I was going to ask with, because the thing is, is that, you know, Heart of Glass was even more than, even more than Miss You. I feel like Heart of Glass is like the perfect, perfect dance song that's not blatantly a disco song. Not to say that Miss You by the Rolling Stones was a blatant. Yeah, people seem to consider anything with four on the floor to be disco. But I always wanted to know, obviously, there, there had to have been some sort of conscious decision like, okay, let's make something accessible we, we thought we we thought we sounded like craft work we were referencing craft work oh, that okay was, that was it not, not so much disco music but i always wanted to know the like for such a song that that has such a steady four on the four pace why was there a decision to make the last bridge into seven eight meter <laughs> Which... I, I don't know if that was an accident or not i mean chapman would chapman would edit fucking slice the two inch tape with a fucking razor, which is kind of unheard of. No, you, you know? guys were playing. Which I was like, no, wait a minute. That one, it's that one little section. I can't, I can't. I mean, I'm sure if you asked everybody, everybody would have a different opinion about okay. why that came about, um, whether it was accidental or not. I don't know. You know, Heart of Glass seems very accessible to play at a jam session, but there's always that moment. <laughs> right after the last there's always that moment right on the course where i'm looking at the people like wait are we are we about to do to the lever are, are we going to do the seven eight part we're we just going to act like the, the beginning the beginning and then it's always a car crash <laughs> well that's, always... that's that's very gratifying thank um, you <laughs> it's made it all worthwhile the drums are all the drums are all pieced together the way a disco record I mean, the bass drums recorded by itself uh the, you know the really? top kit yeah yeah the top yeah, yeah. kits recorded by itself, you know. Yeah, it was that that was the only song like that? That was the only one that was done like that. What was the logic behind that? I have a, a better Mike, mix to it. Mike had done some kind of disco music. Yeah, maybe be able to bring out the kick a little more. I don't know. Ah, oh, okay, okay. I, I see that. I think it was his his ears. You know, I mean, that's he had he had those ears. You know. What studio was this at? Parallel lines. Uh, to be power station, right? Power station, yeah, or record, or record plant. plant, record plant, record plant, or power station, yeah. At the time of parallel lines, 
and and now I guess also do, do you prefer, do you what which do you enjoy more playing live or making records? I like recording. I'm a recording guy. Always. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not doing a tour, but that's mostly because of health stuff. But mm -hmm. they, you know, they got a replacement for me lately. But I, I think Debbie probably both. Maybe I know she gets off on doing the shows a lot. I mean, I like doing the shows. I always love doing the shows. But I this, I've been doing recording ever since I was a little kid. Man, I was screwing around with, you know, old wall and sack reel to reel recorders and stuff like that. And I would always have a TAC four track that if I could beg, borrow, or steal. So I mean, that's just part of my life is doing recording. I I love the laptop digital stuff. Go sitting with logic for hours and tweaking stuff. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Does the music creative decisions start with the two of you or is it an actual democracy in which it's it's uh the six a, of you sort of you know it's a monarchic democracy so a, you a got, passive you aggressive got, uh dictatorship yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i mean what do you guys think okay this is what we're going to do so yeah i mean i i always managed to get a lot of by that time we had been we were, i mean I, I i okay so the the only song that we before we recorded it, I knew was going to be a hit as tight as high. I mean, the other ones I, I really didn't, I wasn't sure, but I knew if we could pull up a decent recording of tight as high, that it was it would be successful. 
Were you a fan of the Paragon's original or? Yeah, the original. Yes, yeah, the original is Godhead, and yeah. it's probably the only reggae song I ever heard that has a violin in it from that period, which is the best. Wow. So the horn lines are based on the violin line. This is what I have to figure out. There's about nine mammoth songs in E minor <laughs> that that come out <laughs> in in uh, you know the first the first half of 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 1980. Nine mammoth dance floor rockers in in E minor. I will ask this much: was was Good Times that much of an influential song that it's almost like? Was it unavoidable? Because, you know, yeah. when I ask some of these people, when I when I ask, you know, the other artists this question, some of them say, like, you know, like, sometimes you just subconsciously go there without purposely trying to go there. Whereas, like, you know, Brian May may confirm or may not confirm that another one bites the dust was exactly what's our version of good times. Yeah, no, Rapture was totally homage to Sheik. Okay. You know? I just I mean, wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, it's the, no question about it I, mean, I was totally thinking of that the whole the baseline is the first thing that came up yeah that was that was an extremely that was an extreme radical thing to do like you know of of, of all the songs in in your catalog that was super super risky could you just talk about how does hip-hop reach you um as a new yorker like were you aware of what was happening in the bronx or yeah, we no. I we I really wasn't that aware. We'd heard rappers delight, uh, you know, on the radio, a couple of things, but then we hooked up with Freddie, and Freddie, I guess, in '77, took us up to this event at a police athletic league up in the Bronx, and that was that was like just this eye-opening experience, you know. It was. Wait, where did you, what year did you meet Fat Five Freddie? Uh, probably '76 or seven. Oh damn! Okay. Long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I've I've gone over the date with him, trying to figure out what the what day what year that was, and we he thinks seventy right. seven was when we went up to this thing. One of my all time, well, I won't say great punishment stories was um, kind of like a fist fight that I almost got into with my cousin because you know at this point it's it's uh, the summer of nineteen eighty one and. He's singing, like we're we're I don't know where we're coming from. We were coming from like my grandmom's house. He was walking from the corner store, and going back home, and he's singing to himself, and he's like, you know, fast, 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 fast is cool. And I was like, wait, why do you repeat that three times? And he's like, because that's how the song goes. Flash is fast, flash is fast, flash is fast. I said, no, it doesn't. She says, and I and then. So basically my cousin never heard of Rapture and I never heard of the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel which for hip hop historians is basically yeah. the first time that the world is hearing what cutting and scratching is like you know Grandmaster Flash goes in the studio and he does a 7 minute open format demonstration of the records of the day you know it takes Sheik's Good Times and Apache and and uh, Rapture and you know just just the party songs of the moment and does a demonstration of what scratching is you know because for most hip hop records you know it you you'd have to get a band get Keith LeBlanc or whatever to to redo the breaks and whatnot because technology wasn't there yet and so 
you know, of course, I'm my level of know-it-all snobbery. You know, was I, I was so angered. Like he then knew he could get my goat, so he would just sing it like. Anytime he just want to fuck with me, he'd just be like, flash is fast, flash is fast, flash is fast, flash is flash. And I'm like, motherfucker. And then we just, you know, and then, you know, we got put on punishment. So, you know, at at the time, like, for you, were you shocked at the reception? Were you nervous about it? Or, or for you, was it just like, this might be filler on the album or... Like, yo, this shit's going to go to number one. Frankie Crocker was a main major component in that. I song. forgot that's yeah. Hitting if it goes to Paradise Garage, it's going yeah. to Frankie Crocker, then it's going yeah. to the world. Okay, yeah, I get he it. was he was a big supporter, and I'm, we are eternally grateful. Yeah, I mean, at that moment, did you realize you were seeing a revolution at the time, or was it just like no? Because you know, it's oh. funny what you said earlier about being a fad because I talked, I was up there with all these record company guys and people on the inside of the industry. And I had 99% of them all said, Oh, it's, it's a fad. It's going to go away. They, the, they, right, said, they said that they said that about punk too. I yeah, mean, I you guess, know, that yeah. was their favorite thing to say, you know? And, and the other thing was, so, you know, when kiss, <laughs> when every time that there was a technological uh, advancement or, you know, update, um, you know, say, ah, you know, it's not going to last. And it was, yeah. That was mm-hmm. the big thing to say. Oh, it's not going to last. One, one of the first things I did when I started working here at um, at 30 Rock, uh, which, of course, you know, where The Tonight Show is and SNL and all these, like, legendary shows, um, there's a giant database system that's hooked up to all of our computers. So any episode of SNL I want to watch, what it, like, you can't get it on YouTube, but I can sit here for days uh-huh. and... <laughs> go through the archives how hard was it for you guys to actually broker that deal so that the funky four plus one gets I, on SNL? I the, the real hard aspect of the funkies being on the show was trying to get them to scratch and i it, yeah i, I was going to say i couldn't get it done and even there was a moment when they even got a limousine and sent two of them uptown to get a, a cable, you know, like they, that, that didn't work. They just couldn't get it done. They went on to a tape and then they also went on the crawl at the end of the show, you know, with under the credits. But right. It was still, but you know, I mean, Chirac is still by many considered the first female rapper, you know? So, yeah. yeah. No, that, that, that to me was a credible cosign because, you know, they were to me like the epitome. And you know the fact that you didn't see female MCs that much, and and yeah. and they, they could have been like, "Hey, go with someone to go with Flash and them, or go with the Sugar Hill Gang." And the fact that oh no, you guys we saw just, that we were buddies with those guys. I hung out with Rodney for many years. You know, so. legendary Rodney C. Rodney yeah. C. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so get into it. So how how did you meet with Charlie Ahern and? Uh, your involvement with Wild Style. Are you shocked at all that suddenly, not even suddenly, well, I'll say that a good 15 years after you create these tracks that suddenly, like, they they do become uh, sort of like a staple of hip-hop culture, at least, like, us using those breaks for real, not yeah. just for the purpose of yeah, Wild yeah, Style. No, but- no, I don't know that I'm shocked. I mean, I, I 
what I what I did was aware of when I told Charlie at the time was, you know, as soon as this thing comes out, there's going to be a hundred Hollywood movies like this. And like Beat Street was like immediately thereafter, right. like a bigger <laughs> budget version, you know. But um, uh, no, it was it was great. It was just all people that we worked with. It was a part of the TV party menu, that whole thing, you know. Right. I mean, I think I think Lenny plays drums on some of that stuff. He was in the TV party orchestra. Yeah, I was going to say, who's who's the other the Blondie guys are not playing on that, right? No, it's, no, it's just I came into the studio with my old Roland synth guitar and put tracks on top of what was already had been recorded, which was bass and drums. And then Freddie did like those sound effects of like right. electric razors and all kinds of weird stuff that he did. And so wait, who did the bass and the, the drums? Um, I might be Lenny. I'm not sure. You got to ask Charlie. On this, I never, you know, I never got together with him. I did the, I did those tracks with Kaz, and I only met Kaz like three years ago for the first time, you know. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh um, wow! And that one track that I did with Kaz, I tried to sync synthesizers up to the scratching by just taking the line out of the one of the out of the out of the scratching track and hitting the putting it into the voltage controlled input of the synth. So that actually is happening on, I don't even know if that's been done since it's a little chaotic. Yeah. I was about to say that's very primitive level of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of making that stuff. Who, who has the master tapes to those, uh, sessions? Charlie, I guess is he's the in control of that whole thing. I might have, I might have copies up in the tapes. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I I was about to say down by law might be like one yeah, of my that, all time well, favorite. Everybody everybody gravitated towards that, and it was so smart that they pressed up vinyls and gave them out to the people who were doing the the sh shows that were being filmed. Right, you know, but they all gravitated towards that one track too. I was going to say, like, how many copies of those instrumentals were made initially? I don't know, twenty to fifty, maybe. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. But but then you know it's it's been repressed and re-released on like a white label thing. It's like it simulates the. Or, I mean, I had guys. I would go to the UK and I would guy. I had guys come up to me and beg me for copies of the original. You know, I didn't have any good control. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, like they they reprinted them, at least the instrumentals like. Uh, you know, around like ninety three, ninety four. So yeah. But for the longest, um, you know, I I couldn't find any of those things, and was but was that wondering. basketball throwdown sequence is like the greatest goddamn thing to me. It is. It's just, it's so it's never been done since you know, and they did a lot of takes to get that, but it it's you know you can find it on YouTube. It's just awesome. Hey, uh, Dev, I wanted to ask about. Your um your first solo outing, uh, working with Nile, um, you did uh, backfired and um, cuckoo, cuckoo. Yes, could you talk about the process of making it? Like, had you always wanted to do your own solo stuff or? Oh well, I think it it became uh, apparent, you know, that we, you know, I guess had divergent interests, you know, mm -hmm. with uh, the Blondie format. And as, um, you know, in the record industry, as you well probably know, that, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times the labels 
reject, you know, you changing. And, you know, Chris and I were, you know, we liked a lot of different things. And um, we especially liked Chic, you know, we liked uh, Niall and Bernard mm-hmm. and uh, Donna Summer. So, you know, I guess we just got to know, got to know Niall a little bit. Bernard was a little more uh, quiet. Niall was, um, Niall was out there, you know, he was very social. He was. And, yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the first times we met him, he was going on about how much he loved Devo, which was, you know, and, and he said to this day, he says he wasn't, didn't know much about rap music and that we were the ones who introduced him. So I, that seems strange <laughs> to me, but okay. that he's the proprietor of, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, that's, that's a common story where, you know, when he was alive, um, I'd always tease Prince about the fact that, you know, Prince Prince um, is very is a very famous uh, lurker on the internet. You know, would often kind of eye roll, proverbial eye roll, whenever I talked about you know his diamonds and pearls gangster rap period. You know, with the, the gun mic and all that stuff. And you know, I, I would tell him all the time that you were actually more hip hop when before you were rapping on purpose. You know what I mean? Because Everything about him was, you know, was that. It was, you know, he's drum programming. He was ghostwriting. You know, he was making up his own groups and had aliases. Like, everything that was hip-hop, even down to, like, the the, the women that he chose to market it. Like, all that was, that was the blueprint that hip-hop built itself upon. You know what I'm saying? And so, oftentimes... uh I just find it weird that the second that he becomes aware of hip hop, then that's sort of like, that's where it got weird. But he was to me, 100% hip hop before he sort of became aware of it. So you telling the story of, of now Rogers, like really not being into it, even though the irony of the good times thing, can you speak upon like the, the, the circumstances after uh, 82 and the band wanting to take a break was it just because you guys were just on a ten year stretch by that point? Oh no, we were all you just need up on drugs. I got really oh, okay. sick. I had this long protracted illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, just all kinds of crap was going on. You know, our finances went to shit. Um, we got you know we were got victimized in a lot of places. We found out this accountant we had the two years we made the most money didn't pay our taxes. Just tried to get us at the tax shelters. So, Yikes! Yeah, it's just it's standard showbiz bullshit, you know. You know, at this point, when you're celebrating uh, your entire history, like for you, what's the what's the 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 biggest lesson that you've learned? Oh, jeez. Well, there's a lot. You know, just relax, be yourself. Don't trust anybody. Um, you know, just the basic stuff. And it's all going to sound so cliche. We we love cliches on this show, yeah. like because to me it's about the creative process, but it's also about you know what what have you learned in hindsight, you know. I mean, I just love the fact that you saved all those demos. Um, yeah, I for one wasn't too sentimental with the demo. I, I was smart enough to not throw them away, but now it's I'm going through the painstaking process of just going through trash bin after trash bin after because I know like in 
10 years, I'm going to have to yeah. make some make some sort of sense of it. So can you just well, talk about the process of, of finding these things? And That was long and arduous. You know, I just, we did our, the, the last Blendy album we did at the Magic Shop and Steve there, you know, the place where Bowie did Black Star, you know, his yeah. last, he did his last two records there and phenomenal amount of stuff came out of that place. And so we were like the last band to record there. And Steve there has the record uh, tape salvaging company also, you know, he bakes the tapes and does right. all that stuff. So that, that was easy. We just, I just, I turned it over to him and our manager, Tommy oversaw the thing. And, you know, I would get these millions of little fragments on Dropbox and mm-hmm. listen to stuff and go, yeah, this is cool, whatever, et cetera. So, um, Chris, what was like the coolest thing that you found um, in the archives? Person, you know, like personally to you, where you were, where you were um, excited about what you found. Did we have a version of the of Moonlight Drive by the Doors mm-hmm. that we recorded in the studio while we were doing either the first or second album, <clears throat> which is really great. But they, whoever was sitting in the control room, didn't hit record at the top of the song. So they did, they did a job. They did a good job of coming in after Damn the engineers first, after the first movement, but uh, and it's you know that I don't know that I was aware that that existed even, but that's out there. Wow, and that's on the box set. Yeah, that's on the box set. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool thing. Um, did you fade it in on the box set, or did you just start it? Yeah, with it starts. It starts with some drums, but it you know it it misses the whole little intro section. First, first, first. Yeah, yeah. Fired him. It's cool, though. <laughs> you know, could you briefly talk about... Um, so at one point, you guys were going to work with Giorgio Moroder? Yeah. Well, Giorgio didn't want to put up with the band bullshit and all the egomania and us having to play things a hundred times to get it right and all that stuff. He, he's like, he's just wants to go in there and get it done. One and done. So you're saying that your your process was more meticulous in terms of like wanting to do because you guys are super tight as a band. I was going to ask like, no, no, I it's quite the opposite. The really? opposite. We were we were sloppy and would have to go over shit a lot to get it done. I mean, it, by you know after a while, by now people have their skills honed, but in the early Blondie days, it was pretty funky. Well, I mean, you know, I mean the way that you execute it, call me. At least, uh, you know, I, I, you guys were airtight by then, you know. So I, yeah, but call me has call me has a lot of Georgia's session guys on it as well as the band, you know. Yeah, I mean, Clem's on there for sure. But, okay, uh, I, I I'm not even a hundred percent on who's what in that track. Okay, I see. But I, I do want to know in closing. Um, just where are you now as far as like creativity is concerned and, and still Well we just finished the twelfth record with right. John Congleton and that was that's very exciting. Um it's a little it's it's a little more raw than the previous one. I'm I've been listening to the mixes coming back. It's it's great. I'm excited to get it out in the world. When when do you uh when do you propose that that will be uh next, next, ready? next year? next year okay i have a, a final question quest if you don't mind yes um 
it's, it's kind of, uh, I ask a lot of people from your generation, especially um, about their vinyl record collections from, from your past. Do you still have your, your vinyl? I, I still have them, but I don't, I, you know, I'm happy to listen to digital stuff at this point. You know, I, um, it's like digital. I do a lot of photography still, and I, I'm not going to go back to film. If, you know, I mean, I like film. It's nice, but it's also kind of, it's kind of like a fetish. But you still have a turn. Yeah, but I, I haven't put anything on it in ten years or whatever. You know. <laughs> yeah, I know you right. guys are pure. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's nice that he still has his collection. You know, a lot of people. Yeah, no, I got plenty of stuff. I got Charles Manson's record. I got the first pressing. Really? Yeah. Okay. What was I watching? I was like just watching some dumb TV show, and they closed with a charles manson song what the heck was that i can't really? remember yeah but for you okay so for you what's what's in your your top five records of all time oh man well that that's a lot you know who john fahey is i know john fahey yeah john fahey's like a superhero to yeah. me i saw him play i mean talked to him briefly um top five beyond that just you know standard stuff what you consider, you know, like Bowie records. Like uh, I was at Studio Fifty Four, and when James Brown did have that double. Oh no! Yeah, I, I saw I saw one of those shows. <laughs> it's funny you say that for James Brown fans. I will personally say that the thing that I admire most about James Brown is that he doesn't know mediocrity. So. Either, <laughs> either he will be the 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 height of perfection, or it's it's the worst shit ever. And <laughs> as a kid, as a kid, I remember saving, like seeing James Brown live at Studio Fifty Four, and yeah. you know this is when I'm first starting to discover breakbeats and everything. So I was like, oh man, look at the cover. He's sweating. Oh, it's gonna be real good. And I brought it home, and I was like, ah, this is the uh -huh. worst. So yeah, no, I was at one. I was at one of those shows. I don't know if it was the one that are on the record, but I kind of remember it. Yeah, live at fifty four. Well, you know, Chris, uh, I want to thank you. We we uh, had a technical difficulty and we lost. Yeah, Deborah. I guess she fell out. She we got lost in the ether. Uh, but anytime you want to get together and bullshit, I'd be happy to. Also, my pleasure. Yes, definitely. You're you're a legend, and I I appreciate thank you doing you. this Likewise. for us. So I on behalf it. of of Sugar Steve and, and I'm Pay Bill and Maia and Fontigolo. This is Questlove of Questlove Supreme. And thank you, Chris and Debbie, for going over your history with us. And we really appreciate it. And we will see you next time, next go around of Questlove Supreme. All right. Much Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.